Lord, we praise you for the uh, fact that you have brought us to yourself and that uh, we know you and in you we are secure. We also desire to lift up the health issues that were mentioned and desire that you would work your will in each of those circumstances and those represented in this little group here that you would continue to work and we would desire and even ask for healing. We know that you can do that, but we also know that uh, sometimes you have other plans and we want to submit to them. So we just want to desire to today to look into your word and see you and understand a little bit more about what you have provided for us and uh, the passage that we'll look at, the encouragement that it has, that it would leave us closer to you, more trusting of you, empowered by you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. If you haven't turned to the book of Romans, let's take a look at uh, Romans this morning. And we're going to look at Luke 31. We won't get all the way to 39. But last week I introduced our time, even though we were looking before 31. But 31 to 39, I think the main emphasis is the security that we have in Christ. And I mentioned that a large portion of the body of Christ believes that you can lose your salvation. And there are several passages that seem to indicate that. And this is one of the passages that I think goes in the other direction. In fact, it gives considerable security to the believer in light of all of the things that Paul has talked about not only in Romans 8, but throughout the book of Romans. So I think the main theme here is the security that we have in Christ, not just for salvation, but security in terms of that relationship and everything that he's talked about. We're not going to lose the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to lose the intercessory prayer of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that even Jesus Christ prays for us later on in this passage as well. We're not going to lose the sanctifying work that uh, the Lord has provided for us. We are not going to lose anything that is promised in God's word. And this passage gives us that security. So if there were any place, any passage in the book of Romans that taught anything apart from this assurance... If it taught the idea that you could lose your salvation, this is where you would find it. Because this is its conclusion to the section on not only sanctification, but the whole package of salvation. In fact, in verse 30, 29 and 30, he talks about the whole process beginning even in eternity past, where God foreknows all things and predestines certain things. And then brings them about in time. So it would be at this point that there'd be a warning. There'd be something that Paul would say, well, this is true only if you persevere. Only if you continue. Only if you, in fact, remain in Christ. Remain in fellowship. But you have nothing of that. In fact, you have the very opposite of that. You have full assurance. Now, If you look at uh, those that hold to this position, and they go through this passage, in fact, when I get to it, one of the things that they will say, for example, in 39, 
actually 38, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. And they would say, well, most of those things, in fact, all of those things are pretty much external, external to the believer, and it doesn't address anything internal. Well, that last little phrase, any other created thing, everything internal is something that God created as well, and that would be included as well. So there's no sense of insecurity in terms of not only salvation, even though this is the main area of discussion, but all of the things that Paul has already laid out in uh, the book of Romans to this point. So let's take a look at that passage, Paul writing to real believers in the city of Rome. Those of you that went on the trip, we walked that archaeological site. We're impressed with first century, not only architecture, but first century uh, society and culture. It was a little rainy that day. Yeah. So you guys may not have seen everything and been fully impressed. Yep. So we're in chapter 8 where he's talking about sanctification. This is the context. Getting to the end of chapter 8 where he's talking about the power available to live the Christian life. Power over sinful flesh. First 11 verses. And we also have the concept of being sons of God. So we're in the family of God with all of the provisions that a family has, eternal provisions, God's family, sonship of sanctification. And based on that, based on that sonship, we have not only provision of God, but we have that relationship with the Father. Verses 18 through 30, he introduces us, even though it kind of is in the background, but he's talking about suffering. He doesn't talk a lot about our suffering, but he gives us a perspective on it because this is the main means that God will use to sanctify us. Process of going through trials, experiencing suffering. So I titled this whole section that we just completed, 18 through 30, the suffering of sanctification. And uh, he's going to touch on it again in this passage, but if you go back to verse 17, if you remember And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So he's talking about suffering in Christ, or with Christ. This is not suffering for our own bad decisions, but suffering as believers, And then verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the context deals with suffering, even though he doesn't directly deal with it, but he's giving us a perspective on suffering beginning in verse 19 through about verse 23. He's going to show that even the entire creation, the entire universe is longing or yearning and waiting for us to be released from these sinful bodies that we may no longer be suffering. So this is the immediate context. And then from there, we are in the passage that we'll look at today, 31 through 39. This is the end 
of the book of Romans, the concluding paragraph. Well, overall, I call it the security of sanctification. So we're still in the section dealing with sanctification and the security primarily in this context deals with the end product of salvation and uh, we call that sanctification, the growth process. I divide this into two parts. The first part focuses in on questions. Now I give some answers as well, but the bulk of the questions are in verses 31 through 35. We have a first set of questions, 31 and 32. These relate to opposition, questions on opposition. So the focus of 31 to 35 are the questions and interspersed are answers with it. But then uh, 36 or 39, we have primarily answers concerning this issue of the security of the believer. Now, just a quick review of verse 31 that we looked at last time. What shall we say to these things? That's the question number one. It's a general question, and I mentioned last time that we could put it in this context of at least verses 28 through 30, this great plan that we looked at, a plan that goes all the way back to eternity past and even looks into the future to our future glorification. But more than likely, at least that passage and more, it probably includes at least all of chapter 8, where we have the power for sanctification. And I would even say even more than that, 6 through 8 even, the entire section on sanctification. If not, and more than likely, including everything that Paul has dealt with concerning everything that he's already spoken of in the book of Romans, beginning all the way into chapter 1. So what then shall we say to these things? What's the conclusion we can come to? Is all of this at risk? Is all of our salvation tentative, including sanctification? What shall we say to these things? And he began this whole major portion of the book of Romans God basically revealing his righteousness to man through this whole area of soteriology that include both salvation and sanctification. So what conclusion can we come to? Can we lose our salvation? Is that one of the conclusions? Well, he's going to emphatically deny that, I think, in this passage with a series of other questions. The second part of the verse is not only... The answer to the first question, what shall we say to these things? We could say, if God is for us, who is against us? And we looked at this last time. We have an if here, beginning this independent clause. If God is for us or dependent clause, who is against us? It's a conditional clause. And in Greek, this is a first class condition. We said last time that uh, there's not really a question here. You could even translate it, since God is for us, or in fact, God is for us. And if that is true, then who is against us? Who can be against us? So he answers the first question with another question. So it's both an answer and then a follow-up question. And this is a tremendous thought to think in terms of God being for us. We can't imagine any greater 
confidence that we could have knowing that God is for us. And in this context, relating to this conclusion to sanctification, if God is for us, then really there's no one who can be against us. Could there be any unbeliever in your personal experience? You may be facing difficulty at the office or somewhere with other people. Can they derail you? Can they uh, cause you to become so angry that you might lose your salvation? Can uh, any unbeliever do that? A Judaizer in the context of Romans? And the answer, obviously, no unbeliever is greater than God. And if God is for us, then no unbeliever could derail us. Secondly, demonic spirits are very powerful. Is it possible that they might overwhelm us? and cause us to do some unthinkable sin such that God would reject us? Well, again, are demons greater than God? No. And if God is for us, then there's no demon, and neither can Satan himself. Satan is simply a created being. He's not at a level just below God. God is magnitudes greater. Satan is a creature And there's no comparison between God and Satan. So if God is for us and God is greater than Satan, then even Satan himself could not derail us once we have eternal life. So he answers the first question with another question, and the answer is an implied answer. If God is for us, and since he is, then the answer to this one, there is nothing and no one that can be against us in any sense, and particularly in terms of detracting or taking away from what God has granted us from eternity past. So then in verse 32, this is basically where we ended last week. He who did not spare his own son. It's another question. It's long. And in fact, he gives us a little bit of an answer to verse 31. And showing how God is for us, God is for us to the extent that he did not spare his own son, but rather delivered him over for us all. And if that is true, and it is true, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So we have question number three. And in this question, we have an interesting word here, in fact, a series of words here that remind us of passages elsewhere. Now, the believers in the first century, all they had was the Old Testament. Even by the time the book of Romans was written, there were very few other New Testament books that were written. There were a few letters, at least one gospel, but the text that the first century believer used in the time of Paul and in the time of the writing of Romans, would have been the Old Testament. If you were grounded in God's word, this passage would remind you of a very important passage in the Old Testament. It would take you back to Genesis chapter 22, where it refers to Abraham, and Abraham did not spare his son. This would remind us of the high point in the spiritual experience of Abraham. And if you go back to chapter 22 in the book of Genesis, and remember the context, God gives these tremendous promises 
to Abraham. He leaves his hometown, Ur of the Chaldees, because God has given these promises. Abraham has believed them, and he leaves. He enters the land of Canaan. The promise involves a son. It involves descendants. It involves a nation. It involves a land. But everything is focused on a descendant. And if you remember the life of Abraham, Sarah had been barren. She had never born a child, and now she's past the age of childbearing. Abraham himself is very, very old at this point in time. In fact, he was 75 when he entered the land of Canaan. So there's little chance from the natural, physical perspective of them having children, and yet God makes this promise, and Abraham also believes And as time goes by, then there's a series of tests that God puts Abraham through in order to develop Abraham's faith. Some of these tests Abraham passes with flying colors and his faith is expanded and he grows. But he also stumbles. And one of the failures of faith is he reasons in his mind that perhaps the way that God is going to accomplish the giving of a son is through Hagar. And you know the story in chapter 16. But that was a failure of faith. And God redirects and moves Abraham forward and reinforces the promise. In fact, enters into a covenant even. And the son is going to come directly from Abraham and Sarah. And after several years, after Ishmael is born, in fact, is grown, Isaac finally comes. And obviously the text emphasizes it's a supernatural birth because of the age of both Sarah and Abraham. So now the prized son is here, the, the prized son, the promise, the son of promise. So Ishmael is not going to be the one that brings about the nation that is promised and or these many descendants, and the blessing is going to be through Isaac. So Isaac grows up, and he's probably about a teenager by the time we get to the chapter that we have in chapter 22, the the occasion of this test that God is going to bring into Abraham's experience. You know the story. God tells him to sacrifice that son. And let me read the text from Genesis Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there. That's probably Temple Mount, and it's probably the very exact place where eventually Solomon would build the temple. So he built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have, and notice the word here, since you have not withheld, is the New American Standard translation here, have not withheld your son. And notice also your only son from me. Two words there. The first one, the word withheld in the Greek translation is the exact same word that we have here in the book of Romans. Did not spare your son. 
And this passage would have reminded of this very passage in verse 12 of Genesis chapter 22. But notice also, your only son was the angel of the Lord unaware that there's Ishmael? No, the word that is used here is a the same word in the Septuagint as we have in the New Testament that designates an only son, not in the sense that only in terms of meaning no other sons, but in the sense of the son of priority. And in this case, the son of promise, the son through which God is going to work. So the Romans passage reminds us of that. Now, there's another passage that helps us to understand this in uh, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. And let's look at that passage in verse 17, because it's a commentary on Genesis 22. Beginning of verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, there's the testing motif that we see throughout the book of Genesis. When he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now, does the writer of Hebrews, is he unaware that there's an Ishmael in the story? No, we have that same special word. In other words, this son is the son of priority, the son through which God is going to work the promise. Notice the parallels between this passage and the Genesis passage. Verse 18 It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendant shall be called. In other words, he is the son of promise. He's the son of priority. And then notice verse 19. How could Abraham do this? This is the valued son. How could he sacrifice what God said through this son? There would be many descendants and there'd be a nation. There'd even be kings in Genesis chapter 17. A promise and a covenant that involves kings. And now God is saying, slay the son? Doesn't make sense. But notice verse 19 in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11. Abraham, he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So Abraham received Isaac back believing that God could raise him from the dead. In other words, this son of promise, God is going to fulfill everything that he said, and Abraham believes God. This is the major and the ultimate test of Abraham's faith. So this passage in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, this is a reference to God. God who did not spare the Lord Jesus Christ, Using wording that reminds us an allusion to Genesis 22. And notice the next part of the verse here. But delivered him over for us all. So the Greek word here, phaedomai, is the same word that we find in Genesis 22.12. And then we have another phrase that's very interesting as well. But delivered him over for us all. Notice the word there, delivered. I think it's another choice that Paul deliberately uses to remind us of another incident, particularly the sacrifice now of the son. The first part reminds us of Abraham and the sacrifice of his own son, his only son. 
And then the word delivered reminds us of the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ. This same word, delivered, parodoken, is used several times in the Gospels of Judas, Judas Iscariot, who delivered Jesus over to be the sacrificial son. But notice, in the Gospels, Judas delivers him over. That's the human agency. And remember, we've been mentioning that God can transform the evil of men, transform it and use it for good and transform it for good. Remember the example that we used when we were talking about the plan of God and we used the crucifixion as the prime example of God transforming the evil of men and using it for the ultimate salvation of all of men. And here we have delivered him, Judas, that was the human instrument that God used. But behind that, and ultimately in the sovereign plan of God, it's God who delivered Jesus Christ over in order that he may die for us. And the for us there is the substitutionary aspect. In fact, the word that is used there in some context is used for the uh, substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. But delivered him over, God ultimately is the one that delivered Christ to crucifixion. And it is for our benefit, and it is in our place. Now, for Abraham, there was a substitute provided. In fact, one of the teachings of Genesis 22 is substitutionary atonement. Remember the lamb that was caught in the bush? That was the substitute for Isaac. But in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was no substitute. He was our substitute, so he had to be delivered over as the sacrificial lamb. So, verse 32, very insightful in terms of what God has done in not sparing his son, but delivering him over for crucifixion. And that leads us... How will he not also with him, if he's given the greater, how will he not also give us the lesser? How will he not also give us, freely give us all things? And we could look at that word freely. It's it's a word. In fact, it's one word in the Greek text, freely give. It's a grace word. In fact, it's a word related to grace. It's from that word group that we get the word grace the word group in the Greek text. So it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God gave the greatest of gifts, his only son, and if you can imagine the uh, the emotions and the thoughts that went through Abraham, this was the most valuable thing that he had. He had waited years. Everything hinged on it. All of the future of the descendants hinged on it. And he had to give that up. God gave it back, as the book of Hebrews indicates, uh, in response to Abraham's faith. And in the case of Jesus Christ, this was the greatest that God gave. Now, how will he not also give us the lesser? So we can summarize these first three questions. First one is a general question. And I think it's a question that gets us into these other questions and transitions from everything else that Paul has been talking about concerning all that he has said before 
how do we respond to that or how do we what do we conclude from that? And then question number two answers that God is for us. And since God is for us, then there is nothing that can oppose us. Ultimately, now we may have opposition in the meantime, but ultimately there's nothing that is going to totally or completely oppose us. Then the question we just looked at in verse 32, if God gave us the greatest, will he withhold that that is lesser? And it's a rhetorical question that we answer with an emphatic no. God is going to give us everything, the total package. And we've been looking at that package in Romans 8, 28 through 30, that goes all the way back into eternity past and is going to go even into the future of, for things that we still await in terms of issues of glorification. So that brings us to verse 33, where we have another series of questions, questions relating to accusations. That's Romans 8, 33 and 34. So those are the questions relating to opposition, verses 31 through 32. Now we have a second set of questions, beginning in verse 33 and 34, These focus on possible accusations that could be brought before the believer. So we've seen three questions, 31 through 32, and now in verse 33, we have another question. And in this case, we have an answer without a question. So the question is, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now, keep in mind the the context of not only the book of Romans, but remember the terminology that Paul uses throughout the book of Romans. We've seen it over and over. He uses terminology that is related to the courtroom. So he's going to use several words here in terms of this relationship to a courtroom. So the scene, put yourself in the ultimate courtroom of God. And who will, in that courtroom, bring a charge? In other words, point out a sin or bring an accusation of some sort, some sort of a a charge against God's elect. Now, there's two words in that question that we need to look at. The first one, the word bring a charge, that's a verb, and kaleo, it's a legal charge. In other words, it's a charge that you would expect in a courtroom. So a legal charge in court. That's the imagery behind what is asked here. And then the second term there, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now, that's the word that we find very often in Scripture relating to this whole concept of the doctrine of election. If you remember when we talked about that chain of things that God has accomplished or in his plan for the believer, I mentioned that the doctrine of election is not stated or mentioned, but here we have that word related to it. And I believe that it's part of the chain. It's just not included in Paul's description in verses 29 and 30. So let's take a little bit of a look at this word, and let me give you a little on it. Now, in this context, we have the noun form, elect, or the reference here is to God's chosen or God's chosen ones. You might translate it. The elect. So 
here is the common noun form of the word where we get this concept of God's choosing or God's election. Now, if you remember, I've mentioned over and over again that when you have a theological term or a theological word, these words come from everyday usage, in other words, a common usage. So also this word, both in its noun form and its in its verb form, can be used in an everyday sense of having just the idea of choosing. Simply has the idea of choosing something. Now, all of you chose today to get up early, take shower, to, in fact, get ready, and actually to show up late. (laughs) (laughs) But you made that choice as opposed to, well, if you had a busy evening, Saturday night, maybe stayed up late, maybe you watched a movie or whatever, or maybe you were watching sports, whatever, you could have slept in. That could have been a choice that you made. Now, The noun form and the verb form could be used in that context of making a choice or choosing something and very commonly used. In fact, in the New Testament, for example, it's used in this common sense in a couple of places. Luke 10, verse 42. But only one thing is necessary. This is the context of Mary and Martha. Remember that context? Mary chose one direction, Martha another. Remember, Martha is complaining. And then Jesus says, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen, now this is the verb form, eklegomai is the the verb, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. In other words, she chose to sit and listen and be at the feet of Jesus, worshiping perhaps. Martha chose the service route. Two different choices used in its ordinary, everyday sense. Or also in Luke 14, 7, in reference to choosing a place of honor. And the verse goes in verse 7, and he began speaking a parable, this is Jesus, to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out, that's the word here, eklegomai, now it's the, the verb form, had been picking out the places of honor at the table saying to them, and then the verse goes on, and he completes the parable. So the word is used in just this ordinary, everyday sense of just making the choice. But when it comes to God, the word is used predominantly in the New Testament, in both its noun forms and even its uh, verb form. In fact, the verb occurs 22 times in the New Testament. The noun, 22 or 23, depending on one passage there. But God made choices. And some of those choices he made in eternity past. In fact, if you do a word study, you're going to come up with lots of different categories of choices that God made. One of the categories is that Christ is God's chosen. For example, in 1 Peter 2, 4, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. In other words, special, you might say, choice, referring to Christ Jesus himself. Or verse 6, in the same context, for this is contained in Scripture, behold, I lay a stone, a choice stone, referring to Messiah, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. It's not used in a sense of salvation. It's not related to salvation in that context. 
because it refers to Jesus Christ. But he's choice, looking more at the quality of Christ Jesus. So it can be used in different categories. It even is used in reference to angels, the good angels. First Timothy 5.21 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. That's eklektos, same word that we have here in Romans. There are chosen angels. God has chosen to preserve, it appears, not for salvation. It's not related to salvation here. It's related to God simply making a choice in terms of some of the created beings, the angelic realm, and he chose to preserve them and keep them from falling. And it can be used in other categories as well. In fact, it's used very often in the Old Testament of several individuals. For example, Abraham in Nehemiah 9-7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. So God made a selection there out of all of the peoples in that culture. Out of all of the peoples in the city of Ur, he chose one, Abraham, called him to himself. Abraham believed God, and God had a plan not only for Abraham even before Abraham's belief, but a plan that would involve the entire nation. There's other verses that refer to Moses as chosen, Aaron as chosen to be the head of the priesthood, even Saul, who later was rejected by God. There's a passage that refers to Saul as chosen, obviously David, Solomon, and God chooses for different tasks, different persons, different individuals, different choices. Now, in the New Testament, the question is, what's the nature of this choice concerning the believer? There are some in our camp that uh, look at all of these passages that refer to the believer corporately. They have a hard time seeing it as an individual choice. To them, it seems like it goes against some other principles like the concept of volition. But I have no problem with God choosing on an individual basis. Certainly, we are choice in terms of the overall body of Christ. But I think, how do you get into the body of Christ? I think part of that is God making choices in eternity past. So I would uh, describe this concept. The majority of believers, first of all, majority of believers generally believe that God in his foreknowledge, knowing ahead of time who's going to be responsive and who is not, chooses those that would in fact believe in him. But that viewpoint puts basically the the concept in the hands of man rather than in the hands of God. I prefer to look at it from the perspective of God making the choice. And because God has made the choice, he also does all the other aspects or links in the chain that we looked at in verses 29 through 30 to even call, to convict, to illuminate such that the the person in view recognizes that his only hope is in Jesus Christ, and he exercised that volition to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But God is the one that chose him, and I believe that God passes over others and lets their depravity run its course, as we talked about the last few weeks. Anyway, so this doctrine 
I would describe as a work of God alone based on his character and for his glory without regard to anything in man where he chose some sinners in eternity past to be saved and glorified and others apparently he passed over. So God's elect. So the two terms, the legal charge in a courtroom and interesting here, Paul introduces the concept of election, God's chosen one. Who will bring a charge against these? God's elect. He gives the answer, God is the one who justifies. And keep it in the context of a courtroom. In other words, the judgment of the judge has been made and he has made a declaration. He has acquitted us, not based on anything that we have done. Not based on who we are, but simply based, as we will see in the next verse, based on what Jesus Christ has done. So the judge has made a pronouncement. He has declared us righteous. He has forgiven sin and declared us righteous. That's justification. And if the supreme and ultimate judge has made this declaration, who will bring a charge that is going to stand up in court? And the obvious answer is there's no one that can bring a charge. Now, the New American Standard, it breaks the sentence there with a semicolon, and I think that's a good thing. There are some versions, a few versions, that would put it in a question mark. And let me remind you that in the original manuscripts, the, the there's no punctuation. In fact, sentences and words run together, but context is usually clear enough to decide some of these issues. And apparently it's not as clear at this point, and some of the translators would put this as another question in line with the other questions that we've had. I think it's better to view it as an answer, and then with a semicolon, and then that leads into verse 34, where he's going to give the basis for this justification that God has declared us righteous. So in summary here, we have a a legal charge in a courtroom that is against God's elect, God's chosen ones, and the decision in court has been made. We are declared righteous. And what this means that, what this means is that every sin has been covered by God's justification. So a summary of the first four questions. Number one is that general question concerning everything that he's talked about. What do we conclude from everything that he said in the book of Romans up to this point? And he gives an answer by asking the second question. Essentially, God is for us, but he frames it in a question. If God is for us and he is, then there's nothing that can oppose us. That's essentially the thrust of that second question. The third question, if God gave the greatest in giving his son, delivering him up to the cross, then he will give the lesser. And now the essence of the fourth question is that every sin is covered by God's justifying work. So that brings us to verse 34. We can illustrate this using... The highest court in our country, the Supreme Court, that's the image in the background there. 
All decisions, all legal decisions, they can be taken through a series of different courts, but the final decision, if it gets to a Supreme Court, goes to the Supreme Court, and that decision is final. That's the final decision. It ends there at the Supreme Court. The analogy that I'm using here is there is an ultimate court that is even greater than the Supreme Court. That's God's Supreme Court, which is above all courts, obviously. And God, when he makes a decision in his court, that decision is ultimately final. And by the way, even Supreme Court decisions, they can be reviewed later and they can be overturned. In fact, one of the issues today is whether Roe versus Wade could be overturned if we have enough support from the Supreme Court and if it's brought through the lower courts. But there's a court that when it makes a decision, it is ultimately and totally final. That's God's final decision. His decision is that we are justified. So no one can bring a charge against us. God's elect, because we have been justified. So that brings us to the next verse, verse 34, which actually supports, and that's why I don't think it's a question, because I think it actually supports what God has done in justifying. But he asks another question related. It's another courtroom question, similar to the one who can bring an accusation or a charge. And in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? In other words, who can say this person is guilty? And now he's going to answer it. Jesus Christ is the one who died. He's the one that provided the basis for justification. God can declare us righteous because Christ paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. Christ died. He paid the penalty. And not only that... But yes, rather, who was raised to confirm that God accepted that sacrifice, that uh, one atonement that Jesus Christ offered in payment for sin was validated by the resurrection of Christ and showed that Christ was victorious over death. He was raised from the dead. Now, we can use the same illustration that I used. I'm not saying they're necessarily parallel, but what we do have, I think, is another unbreakable chain relating to the work of Christ. I use this illustration to illustrate the unbreakable chain of that plan that God has that starts in eternity past and ends even in the future in terms of our glorification. But I'm going to use kind of the same imagery here. And there's two parts here. First, the death. And both of these took place historically in the past, in the first century. And then we have also resurrection. And that's not all. We also have in verse 34, who, referring back to Christ Jesus, who is at the right hand of God. And there's lots of verses. This is one of Many, we're running out of time here, so I'm not going to give you all of the verses, but maybe next time we'll review some of these, and I'll give you some more verses. But right now, presently, Christ is at the right hand of God, of the Father, and he is acting as high priest, not so much as king, but more as high priest, because of the next part of the verse, 
who also intercedes for us. He is mediating. He is interceding. If anyone would bring a charge or if anyone attempts to condemn us, Christ is there saying, I paid the penalty. I died. I covered that sin. That sin has been dealt with once and for all. He died once, as the book of Hebrews tell us, to cover all of the sins. And now he is interceding for us that we may, in fact, experience more and more of the righteousness that we have been declared. So on our chart, we can add here theologians calling the seating at the right hand his session. So he is in session, you might say, presently. And one of the functions that he is performing, there's several, by the way, he gives spiritual gifts also, other things that Christ does from the right hand. He is head over the church at the right hand. But specifically for us as individuals, he is praying or interceding. So I put them in present time. So we can summarize all that we've looked at today. Number one, we have that general question concerning everything that he's talked about. Secondly, and most importantly, in fact, what is the main theme of everything else that follows, God is for us. Since God is for us, then nothing else can oppose us. And then the third question, if God has given us the greatest in Christ and delivering him up to crucifixion, then uh, he will give us the lesser, the inheritance, uh, the full package in terms of our salvation that is yet future. So it is not at risk So he will give the lesser since he has already given the greater. And then the fourth question, every sin has been justified by the Father, by the ultimate judge. Every sin is justified by the ultimate judge. And then the fifth question that we have in uh, verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Well, based on what Jesus has done, every sin is covered by the work of Christ. So we've looked at five of the questions and we'll save the last two for next week. And we have a question on separation in 835 that we'll wait till we look at next time. So this is a good point to close in a word of prayer.